Well, good evening and a very warm welcome to the second in my series of uh, Gresham rhetoric lectures on how Shakespeare was shaped by his inheritance from classical antiquity, from ancient Greece and Rome. So lecture two, Shakespeare's Heroes. Let me begin with a rare original account of the death of a hero on the Elizabethan stage. How would it have joyed brave Talbot, the terror of the French, to think that after he had lain 200 years in his tomb, he should triumph again on the stage and have his bones new embalmed with the tears of 10,000 spectators who, in the tragedian that represents his person, imagine they behold him fresh bleeding. I will defend it against any collion or club-fisted usurer of them all. There is no immortality can be given a man on earth like unto plays. To set this in context, brave Sir John Talbot was a heroic figure during the Hundred Years' War against France in the time of Joan of Arc, early in the ill-fated reign of the boy king, Henry VI. Talbot won victories against the odds at Pontoise, Harfleur, and on the Somme, gaining high renown, being created Earl of Shrewsbury, and becoming known as the English Achilles. Eventually, though, he was defeated and killed in Bordeaux during the battle that marked the end of English rule in Aquitaine. A century and a half after his death, 200 years in that quotation is an exaggeration, his heroic deeds were celebrated on stage in a play called Harry VI, performed to packed houses in the Rose Theatre on London's South Bank in 1592. His death scene was so powerful that spectators imagined that the actor who played Talbot really was the heroic warrior, fresh bleeding. They were moved to tears, and those tears were a metaphoric embalming of his body. The stage thus became a second tomb, closer to home than his actual tomb far away in Bordeaux. Noble warriors were traditionally buried with their military achievements, their sword, shield and helmet, above their tomb as a way of immortalising their deeds. In Shakespeare's time, you could see those of King Henry V in Westminster Abbey, and they're still there today in the museum at Westminster Abbey. But in the case of Talbot, by contrast, it is the retelling of his, of his story on stage that gives him renown. There is no immortality can be given a man on earth like unto plays. As that nickname, the English Achilles, suggests, ever since ancient times, epic poetry was a medium for immortalising heroic deeds on the battlefield. Homer's Iliad, which some of you heard a Gresham lecture on very recently, with the death of Achilles on the field of Troy, was the foundation stone of Western literature. When Talbot urges his men into battle, the hearts of an English theatre audience in the war-torn 1590s would have been truly stirred. How are we parked and bounded in a pale, a little herd of England's timorous deer, mazed with a yelping kennel of French curs? If we be English deer, be then in blood, not rascal-like to fall down with a pinch, but rather moody, mad and desperate stags, Turn on the bloody hounds with heads of steel and make the cowards stand aloof at bay. 
Sell every man his life as dear as mine, and yet they shall find dear, dear of us, my friends. God and St George, Talbot and England's right, prosper our colours in this dangerous fight. The epic voice indeed. You can sense Shakespeare getting into his stride, as if he is having a dry run for the rhetoric of his greatest military hero, King Harry V in whose rhetoric the deer gives way to the greyhound. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirits and upon this charge, cry God for Harry, England and St George. The theatre loves an action hero, whether it be King Henry V at Agincourt or Marcius Caius in primitive Rome, penetrating the city of Coriolis alone and emerging to win the name Coriolanus. If you have writ your annals true, tis there that like an eagle in a dovecot, I fluttered your volsions in Coriolis. Alone I did it, it's Coriolanus. But wait, in Shakespeare's case, the story is always more complicated. That account of the thousands of spectators cheering and weeping at the figure of Talbot on stage quite probably refers to a version of the play Harry VI that was performed before Shakespeare had a hand in it. We cannot be sure about this, but for over 200 years, scholars have been fairly certain that the majority of the play we now call Henry VI Part I is not by Shakespeare. It seems to have been a collaborative work, as was common in the theatre of the time, with a leading part in the writing undertaken by Thomas Nash, who just happens to be the man who wrote the passage about the stunning success of the play. He was almost certainly engaged in a piece of self-promotion. There is, however, little doubt that the bulk of Act Four in the surviving text of the play, including the God and St George, Talbot and England's right speech, from which I've just quoted, was written by Shakespeare. We don't know what Talbot's death would have been like in the original version by Nash and others, but what is striking about Shakespeare's version is that he mingles the heroic rhetoric with another kind of language, much more tender and elegiac. Talbot's son fights alongside him and dies before him. And my guess is that the son was a Shakespearean innovation in the script. Talbot's last lines are those of the father, not so much the warrior. O thou, whose wounds become hard-favoured death, speak to thy father ere thou yield thy breath. Brave death by speaking, whether he will or no, imagine him a Frenchman and thy foe. Poor boy, he smiles, methinks, as who should say, had death been French, then death had died today. Come, come and lay him in his father's arms. My spirit can no longer bear these harms. Soldiers, adieu, I have what I would have. Now my old arms are young John Talbot's grave. There is a gentleness and a wit here that draws the audience away from the image of the valiant hero and towards consciousness of the human cost of war. The young should not die before their parents. Few images are more poignant than that of the father bearing his dead child in his arms. Think forward in Shakespeare's career. We look to 
80-year-old King Lear carrying onto stage the dead body of his beloved youngest daughter Cordelia, who has been executed in prison after she and her father's forces have been defeated in a bloody civil war. Civil war, a great fear in the Elizabethan age, is a great theme in Shakespeare's plays. A scene in Henry VI, part one, that is certainly attributable to Shakespeare is the encounter in the Temple Garden here in the city of London, where representatives of the houses of York and Lancaster pluck white and red roses and symbolically prepare the way for the civil strife that will rip England apart in Henry VI, parts two and three. The rupture in the fabric of the nation is nowhere more powerfully visualised than in a scene in Henry VI, part three, when first there enters a son that has killed his father, and then there follows a father that has killed his son. The division of the kingdom brings the division of families. Think Brexit writ large. <laughs> when the father realises that the body he is bearing is that of his son, he delivers a reprise of Talbot's elegy over his dead boy, though here with the added poignancy of the inadvertent filicide, the fact that they have been fighting against each other, not standing together for their country. These arms of mine shall be thy winding sheet. My heart, sweet boy, shall be thy sepulchre. For from my heart thine image ne'er shall go. My sighing breast shall be thy funeral bell. And so obsequious will thy father be, even for the loss of thee, having no more, as Priam was for all his valiant sons. I'll bear thee hence, and let them fight that will, for I have murdered where I should not kill. So the grief he feels leads him to withdraw from the battle, to reject the code of military glory. But the line that interests me here, and that leads me into my main theme, is the simile as Priam was for all his valiant sons. According to Homer, King Priam of Ilium had 50 sons, the vast majority, majority of whom were slain on the field of Troy by the Greeks. Priam is the archetype of the father who has the horror of witnessing the death of his sons in battle. It is this process of comparison with an example from classical antiquity that I want to explore today as a way of revealing Shakespeare's complex, critical attitude to heroism. Let me go back to the place where I ended my first lecture, to the idea of rhetoric in the age of Shakespeare. So a quick recap for those of you who weren't here last month, and you can catch the full lecture and a transcript on the Gresham College website. What I was saying last time was that the art of rhetoric, which meant the persuasive use of words to affect an audience emotionally and to change their ideas, was the essential building block of education in Elizabethan England. Shakespeare would have been taught basic rhetorical techniques at school. And I told last time of how when the Gresham Professorship of Rhetoric was established in the late 1590s, public lectures on the art of eloquent speech were delivered to the citizens of London. And those of you here for that lecture will remember that I pointed out that at the very time of the first Gresham lectures on rhetoric, Shakespeare was actually a resident in the very parish, St Helen's Bishopgate, 
where the professor delivered his talk in the house that had belonged to Sir Thomas Gresham. The content of that inaugural Gresham rhetoric lecture of 1598 is lost, but it was delivered by an Oxford don who was not known for his original ideas, so it would not have been innovative. It would have been an exposition and perhaps an application of the classical ideas of rhetoric that went all the way back to Aristotle. In his treatise on rhetoric, the great Greek philosopher had divided rhetoric into three classes, each of them appropriate for a particular purpose. There was forensic rhetoric for legal cases, epideictic rhetoric. Epideictic meant the language of praise, and that was used for public ceremonies. And then there was deliberative rhetoric. We still have the English word deliberate. It means to think carefully, to ponder a question, to weigh a case. For Aristotle and his most influential successor, Cicero in ancient Rome, deliberative rhetoric took place in the political arena. Its purpose was to offer advice about appropriate actions in pursuit of the public good. Deliberation relied especially on a technique whereby an argument was made using examples from the past to predict future outcomes. Aristotle makes a key distinction when he writes that enthymemes are most suitable to forensic speech. Now, the enthymeme was a form of syllogism, a mode of argument relying on logic. But Aristotle says that's, that's what you need for court cases. But for political arguments, for the public arena, examples are most suitable to delib for deliberative speeches. For we judge of future events by divination from past events. We judge of future events by divination from past events. So examples, for which Aristotle's Greek word was paradigma, paradigma, from which we get paradigm. Examples are of two kinds, Aristotle says. The mention of actual past facts, i.e. historical examples, and the invention of facts by the speaker. And of the latter, Aristotle explains, there are two kinds, the illustrative parallel and the fable, such as the fables of Aesop. Now, the centrality of examples to deliberative rhetoric explains why, in his rhetorical treatise, The Art of English Poesy, written just at the time that Shakespeare was beginning his career in the theatre, George Putnam gave a climactic place to, the, to, to this technique. So Put, Putnam lists all the different sorts of rhetorical technique that could be used. And the one he has at the climax, the most important one, is paradigma, or resemblance by example. He writes, finally, if in matter of counsel or persuasion, we will seem to liken one case to another such as pass ordinarily in man's affairs, and do compare the past with the present, gathering probability of like success to come in the things we have presently in hand. Or if we will draw the judgment's precedent and authorised by antiquity as veritable, and peradventure feigned and imagined for some person, into similitude or dissimilitude with our present actions and affairs. It is called resemblance by example, as if one should say thus, Alexander the Great in his expedition to Asia did thus, so did Hannibal coming into Spain, so did Caesar into Egypt. Therefore, all great captains and generals ought to do it. 
Now, Shakespeare parodies the pedantic use of this figure of paradigma as a form of argument. In Henry V, when Flewellen compares King Harry to Alexander the Great, if you mark Alexander's life well, Harry of Monmouth's life has come after it in different wealth, for there is figures in all things. And if you remember Flewellen the Welshman, he says, well, Harry is uh, Prince of Wales, Harry of Monmouth, Monmouth begins with M, uh, Alexander is Alexander of Macedon, and Macedon lives in M. And there's a river in Monmouth and a river in Macedon, and there's salmons in both. And uh, so this is Shakespeare parodying the technique. But when Titus Andronicus reads his daughter's fate through the memory of Ovid's Philomel, Shakespeare is signalling that resemblance by example, comparing the past with the present, and drawing judgments precedent and authorised by antiquity as veritable. At moments such as that, we see that examples from the past, illustrative parallels, are among his principal methods of storytelling. He would have agreed with Putnam that no one thing more prevaileth with judgment than persuasion by similitude, and that there is no more powerful similitude than comparison with an exemplar from the past. And such an art is applicable in any public forum, not merely a court or a council, senate or parliament. So deliberative rhetoric had a very wide application and in Shakespeare's London, the theatre was a new and democratic space for open debate about both public goods and private lives. One might even go so far as to say that all the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries were exercises in deliberative rhetoric, in which the audience was invited to make up their own minds on matters of morality and politics. Shakespeare practised this deliberative technique in almost everything he wrote, and it is in this sense that his imagination was shaped by the art of rhetoric in general and the technique of divination from the classical past in particular. So the uses of history, the illustrative parallel, the tale and fable, these were key weapons in Shakespeare's rhetorical armoury. More than this, however, at a very profound level, Shakespeare constructed his characters' selves by means of what I would describe as a personalised rhetoric of illustrative parallel. Let me demonstrate what I mean by considering the case of his most famous character, Hamlet. The first occurrence in the play of the word Hamlet occurs during the opening scene. But of course it doesn't refer to Prince Hamlet. It occurs when Horatio names the ghost who has initially been identified as bearing that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march. The dead king, old Hamlet. Horatio describes him as our valiant Hamlet. And watching on the battlements, they see that the ghost appears to be wearing the very armour in which he killed old Fortinbras on the battlefield in a war between Denmark and Norway. So old King Hamlet is set up as the archetype of the warrior hero. The audience only then learns that there is also a young Hamlet. Horatio says they will go and tell him about his father's ghost. The ghost in a very literal sense, a figure from the past, is thus not only Hamlet's father, but also his paradigm, his illustrative parallel. However, when we see young Hamlet in the next scene, he is anything but a warrior hero. 
he is wearing black, which is not only a signal that he is still in mourning when the rest of the court is not, but is also the habitual dress of the melancholy man, the very opposite of the man of action. In addition, he is identified as a student, a scholar, a man of thought rather than action. And as a lover, Polonius believes that Hamlet is suffering specifically from love melancholy, the malady of unrequited desire. In the Anatomy of Melancholy, Robert Burton would write of its symptoms, distraction, loss of appetite, sleeplessness, a dishevelled appearance, exactly the way Hamlet represents himself to Ophelia. When the actors arrive later in the action, Shakespeare reminds his audience of the way that plays depend on character types. He that plays the king shall be welcome. His majesty shall have tribute of me. The adventurous knight shall use his foil and target. The lover shall not sigh gratis. The humorous man shall end his part in peace. The clown shall make those laugh whose lungs are tickled to the seer. So for the audience of Hamlet, these character types constitute a ready set of illustrative parallels within the theatrical repertoire. Paradigms for the king, the warrior hero, the adventurous knight, the lover, the melancholy or humorous man, and the clown. The pleasure taken by Hamlet in his enumeration of all these possible roles suggests that he quite fancies the idea of playing all of them himself, which in the course of the play he does save that his reign as king only lasts a few seconds. But it also suggests that Hamlet does not quite know which role to play, or more precisely, that he detects a massive disjunction between the turmoil of his inner life and the public roles offered to him by history, custom and theatrical example. As he says in his first substantial speech, these indeed seem for they are actions that a man might play, but I have that within which passeth show. Hamlet cannot show us what he has within, but he can tell us. Hamlet is the play in which Shakespeare develops, as never before, the full art of soliloquy, the revelation of the individual mind to the listening audience. And if we look at Hamlet's first soliloquy, we find that it is through the rhetorical art of illustrative parallel that he reveals himself. First, he compares his father to his uncle, the old king to the new. That was to this Hyperion to a satire. Shakespeare expects his audience to know that Hyperion was the god of the sun, sometimes used as an alternative name for Apollo, the sun being the appropriate emblem for the majesty of a true king and that a satire was a mythical creature, half man, half goat, an emblem for the bestial element in man, and especially for goatish, goatishness, which means uncontrollable sexual desire. Then Hamlet compares Gertrude, following her first husband to the grave, to Niobe, all tears. Shakespeare expects his audience to know that Niobe was a mythical figure who wept uncontrollably, uncontrollably for her many dead children, becoming all tears. But the audience would also know that Niobe then turned to stone. It's a story in Ovid's Metamorphoses. 
turning to stone, symbolically suggesting that after such grief, she would forever be numb and incapable of further emotion. Here, the comparison turns to contrast. In Putnam's terms, similitude to dissimilitude, where Niobe turned cold, Gertrude has moved all too swiftly from watery tears to the heat of renewed sexual passion. Contrast or dissimilitude is also the ground of Hamlet's final illustrative parallel in his first soliloquy. Claudius, he says, is no more like my father than I to Hercules. Hercules was the archetypal action hero, the muscular demigod. By saying that he is not Hercules, Hamlet is identifying himself as a man of contemplation, not action, a scholar, not the kind of soldier that his father was. So Hamlet's method of thinking is to find a paradigm in the, in the repertoire of book learning that he has derived from his humanist education. The problem for a good student like Hamlet is that there are so many possible models of behaviour that it is hard to choose between them. So in his second soliloquy, he says he will simply erase them all. He's just encountered the ghost, whose last words before disappearing were, Remember me. Remember thee. Aye, thou poor ghost. While memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. Remember thee. Yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all sores of books, all forms, all precious past that youth and observation copied there. And thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain. So sores of books there refers to the sentences, the proverbial wisdom taken from the writers of the past that a student was supposed to write down in his table or commonplace book. Of course, Polonius gives uh, a whole list of such sores in his famous advice to Laertes. You know, Neither a borrower nor a lender be to thine own self be true and all that. And then among these forms and pressures or mental impressions from the past would have been that repertoire of behavioural examples. Hamlet vows to wipe the slate clean and fill his mind with one image alone, that of his father's armoured ghost. Now this creates a new problem for him. And we need to remember here that Shakespeare's Hamlet was his distinctive reworking of an old Hamlet play that was in the repertoire at the beginning of his career. So this is something of a repeated pattern. We saw it with Henry VI, part one. He's reworking an existing play. So too with Hamlet. The problem with the old Hamlet play um, is that the old play is lost. I've just actually done a pre-record of the Christmas edition of Melvin Bragg's In Our Time on the subject of Hamlet, and we talk more about that in, in this. There's one thing, though, that survives from the old Hamlet play, and that is the ghost's catchphrase. It was Hamlet revenge. Now carried within that command is a rhetorical paradigm. If the Hamlet of the old play were to have asked, what do you mean by revenge? Or how shall I do it? The answer would have been, behave like the past Avengers you have read about or seen on stage. Classical literature and early modern drama are full of action heroes avenging their father's deaths. But by replacing the catchphrase Hamlet revenge with 
remember me, the ghost is depriving his son of the models and reducing him to brooding paralysis, since remembrance is a thought, not an action. Hamlet has said, I will wipe my memory clean of everything but the figure of the ghost. So presumably he's wiping out the image of Orestes and Thyestes and the Hieronimo of kid's Spanish tragedy, all those other revengers whom he could have imitated. So it is that in his next soliloquy, Hamlet requires the stimulus of an actor to set him on the course of action. He witnesses the player weeping as he delivers a dramatic speech about Hecuba driven to madness by grief following the slaughter of her sons and her husband in Troy. The image of Hecuba is itself a classical paradigm, but the presence of the player adds a layer of complexity. Now think about this. The audience in the theatre is witnessing the actor playing Hamlet, witnessing the actor playing the actor, playing the part of an actor in a play about the fall of Troy, describing Hecuba going out of her senses. The layers of performance are almost enough to make us go out of our senses. But at least the remembrance of the power of the imagined Hecuba is enough to give Hamlet the inspiration for an action, namely inserting a speech into another play in order to turn it into what he calls a mousetrap to catch the conscience of King Claudius. After Claudius's reaction to that play, the murder of Gonzago, convinces Hamlet of his uncle's guilt, the young prince delivers another soliloquy in which he does finally try to turn himself into the embodiment of an avenger. The trouble is, he invokes the wrong paradigm. He should have remembered the revenge tradition and said something like, let the soul of Atreus enter this firm bosom, referring to Seneca, Seneca's famous revenge play, Thyestes. Or perhaps he could have said, let the soul of Andronicus enter this firm bosom, remembering Shakespeare's uh, revenge play of Titus Andronicus. But instead he says, let not ever the soul of Nero enter this fir firm bosom. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius had made Nero into the archetype of a tyrant. Simply to invoke his name is Hamlet's way of willing himself to act violently. But then Hamlet checks himself, remembering in an instant that Nero secured his position by killing his mother, Hamlet modifies the comparison. Let me be cruel, he says, yes, let me be like Nero, but then the modifier, let me be cruel, not unnatural. That is to say, let me be unlike Nero. Killing the person who gave birth to you is about the most unnatural thing imaginable. Hence Hamlet's conclusion, I will speak daggers to her, but use none. But here we see the personalised rhetoric of comparison and differentiation proceeding with the speed of thought. The monument to Shakespeare in Holy Trinity Church, Stratford-upon-Avon, erected shortly after his death in 1616, bears a Latin inscription proclaiming that the earth holds his body, the people mourn him, and his spirit is on Mount Olympus. It praises his judgment as that of Nestor, the wise old man in Homer's Iliad. 
His mental powers as those of Socrates, the greatest philosopher of the ancient world, and his literary art as that of Virgil, the most admired of Roman poets. At the time of Shakespeare's birth in 1564, it would have been inconceivable that a provincial glover's son who started his career as an actor, turned playwright for the public stage and never published an epic or heroic poem, could end his life being regarded as an English Virgil. In his lifetime, he was more aptly compared to the comic writers Plautus and Terence, the tragedian Seneca, and the great writer of myth and metamorphosis, Ovid. In his extant works, he never mentions Virgil by name in the way that he refers to Ovid, Seneca, Plautus, Horace, Cicero, and Mantuan. The claim that he had the art of Virgil, Arte Maronum, Virgil was Publius Virgilius Maro, hence Maronum, Arte Maronum. This is really shorthand for he was the best, and perhaps he is or will come to be seen as our national poet in the way that Virgil was ancient Rome's national poet. So I don't think it's intended to mean his works are in the Virgilian style. Now, although Shakespeare never named the Aeneid or its author in his works, he did allude on a number of occasions to the character of Aeneas, remembering him, as most educated Elizabethans remembered him, for three things. Escaping from Troy with his father on his back, falling in love with Dido, queen of Carthage, and then deserting her, and then becoming the great ancestor of the Romans, the founder of Rome. <coughs> Thus, Cassius's simile for his action in rescuing the drowning Caesar from the Tiber in Julius Caesar. As Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear. The bearing of Anchises, father of Aeneas, uh, an image widely represented in engravings, statues and emblem books, is explicitly reimagined on stage, though with the father dead, at the end of the Battle of St Albans at the climax of Henry VI Part II. Here, young Clifford exits, carrying the body of his father, who has been slain on the field in combat with Richard, Duke of York. Come, thou new ruin of old Clifford's house, as did Aeneas, old Anchises, bear. So bear I thee upon my manly shoulders, but then Aeneas bear a living load, nothing so heavy as these woes of mine. As for the desertion of Dido, this is remembered in Cymbeline and the Tempest, where Aeneas is referred to as false Aeneas, and most memorably in The Merchant of Venice. In such a night stood Dido with a willow in her hand upon the wild sea banks and waft her love to come again to Carthage. In its dramatic context, that allusion is highly ironic. It is supposed to be a romantic moonlit scene with lovers, Lorenzo and Jessica, at the beginning of their relationship. A broken-hearted woman about to commit suicide is not exactly an auspicious augury. This is a first hint that Shakespeare just might have had what could be described as a counter-Virgilian, or at the very least an anti-heroic imagination. And that idea of Shakespeare having sympathy for Dido and not for Aeneas is something I'm going to talk about in my next lecture when I turn to Shakespeare's lovers. But for now, I want to consider the most Virgilian speech that Shakespeare ever wrote. It comes in Hamlet. 
The players have arrived at Elsinore. Hamlet welcomes his old friend, the lead actor, and he asks for an instant taster of the player's quality, for a passionate speech. What speech, my lord? Oh, says Hamlet, could I have one from a play that, uh, oh, what play was it? Either it was never acted or it bombed after a single performance because it was too sophisticated. It was caviar to the general. One speech in it, he continues, I chiefly loved. "'Twas Aeneas's tale to Dido, and thereabout of it especially when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. Then off he goes, Hamlet beginning the speech, he gets the first line wrong and then remembers it, and then the player picks up from him. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. Pyrrhus is the son of Achilles, determined to avenge his father's death on the battlefield. The player takes up the narrative. Anon he finds him striking too short at Greeks. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the unnerved father falls. Then senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow with flaming tops, stoops to his base and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of reverent Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So as a painted tyrant Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. But as we often see against some storm a silence in the heaven, the rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death, and none the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus' pause, aroused vengeance sets him new, vengeance sets him newer work, and never did the cyclops' hammers fall on Mars, his armour forged for proof eternal, with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. Certain details there, such as Priam's antique sword, repugnant to command, do seem to be translations of phrases in, in Virgil's account in the Aeneid of Aeneas' tale of the fall of Troy. And others, interestingly, are taken from the dramatisation of Aeneas telling that tale in a play called Dido, Queen of Carthage by Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Nash, which the RSC are shortly going to be performing in London. The image of Priam being knocked to the ground by the whiff and wind of Pyrrhus raising his sword is taken from Marlowe. But I think far more interesting than particular verbal parallels is the way that Shakespeare uses this speech. In Virgil, Pyrrhus's actual slaying of Priam is dispatched in two swift lines. Similarly, in the Marlowe play, um, what happens there is that Hecuba has, is, is, is trying to stop Pyrrhus by uh, attaching her fingernails to Pyrrhus's eyelids, but she's carried off by some burly soldiers. And then immediately um, you get the line um, of Pyrrhus uh, to Priam. Then from the navel to the throat at once, he ripped old Priam. I think that kind of gave Shakespeare the idea for that, uh, that extraordinary image of Macbeth, unseeming MacDonald from the nave to the chaps. But in the player's recitation to Hamlet, Pyrrhus's raised sword is held suspended for many lines in an effect anticipating a kind of cinematic freeze frame. During this imagined suspension, Pyrrhus did nothing. And the line is 
just pauses at that moment. It's an incomplete line. The gap before the fall of the sword is filled by two lengthy similes. There's a five-line analogy with a lull, the idea of a lull before a storm, and then picking up the thunderclap with which the storm breaks. There's a comparison with the noise of the hammer of the cyclops as they forge the sword of Mars. Now, that elaborate comparison to the storm is what is known as an epic simile. Because epic poetry is an extended form that moves at a leisurely pace, the narrative is frequently punctuated by such comparisons. You find that in Homer, you find it in Virgil, you find it in the English epic of Milton. There's a good example, actually, in Virgil, in Aeneas' tale to Dido, when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. When Pyrrhus arrives at Priam's door... Um, there's a five-line comparison of him to a serpent raising itself up in readiness to strike. This is Virgil in the Elizabethan translation of a man called Thomas Fair. Before the porch, all ramping first at the entry door, doth stand Duke Pyrrhus in his brazen harness, bright with burnished brand, and glistering like a serpent shines, when poisoned, whom poisoned weeds hath filled, that lurking long hath underground in winter cold been hid. But now his coat of castle, fresh with youth renewed and pride, upright his head doth hold, and swift with wallowing back doth glide, breast high against the sun, and spits with tongues through forked fire. You do slightly feel, get on with it. Do we really need five lines about a serpent at this point? Now, at the end of the Pyrrhus speech, which is the second longest speech in the play, longer than all but one of Hamlet's soliloquies, Polonius has the immortal line, this is too long. <laughs> Not an entirely foolish observation. Hamlet agrees that the speech will have to be trimmed if it's to be performed. It shall to the barbers with your beard. And in modern productions, it usually is trimmed. And this surely is Shakespeare's way of saying that he recognises there's something inherently undramatic about the heroic idiom exemplified by Virgil. To pause for an epic simile is inevitably to slow down the action. The effect does work for the deliberate freeze frame of Pyrrhus's pause in the embedded narrative, but for a character to keep stopping to speak in lengthy similes and metaphors runs the risk of boring the audience. Given the parallels with Marlowe's rendition of Aeneas's tale in Dido, Queen of Carthage, which actually incorporated huge chunks of direct translation from Virgil, Shakespeare may even have been teasing his dead rival over the excessive length and poetic elaboration of his speeches. But there's further significance to Pyrrhus's pause. Shortly after the king breaks up the play within the play, the audience is presented with the powerful stage image of Claudius kneeling in penitential prayer and Hamlet standing over him with sword drawn. This is a clear echo of Pyrrhus standing over Priam. And I've illustrated this for you with a, a, a Renaissance painting of the, 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 the moment. Uh, there's Pyrrhus over Priam and David Tennant um, as Hamlet um, over the, the, the praying Claudius. This moment on stage is actually precisely enacting the freeze frame moment that the player described. But Hamlet does not follow his role model. At this point, the classical inheritance clashes with the Christian, and in particular the Protestant belief system. After the pause, Pyrrhus plunges in the sword and sends his adversary to Hades. 
But Hamlet stops to reflect that to kill a man at prayer would be to send him straight to heaven, which would be no requital for the murder of old Hamlet, taken full of bread with all his crimes broad blown as he slept, deprived of the opportunity of deathbed penitence. Hamlet's rejection of the pattern offered by Pyrrhus is of a piece with the play's broader questioning of the ethos of revenge. When we see Hamlet standing over the painted Claudius, he resembles for a moment the painted tyrant to whom Pyrrhus was compared in the player's speech. The problem Hamlet wrestles with throughout the play is that to become an avenger, he must be a murderer, and that potentially makes him a tyrant no better than Claudius. It is this thought that sparks his conscience, a key Christian idea. And in this regard, it's notable that Hamlet's most famous soliloquy begins with canon law's proscription of suicide, you know, the canon of the Almighty, the Almighty setting his canon against self-slaughter. And it ends with the idea that conscience makes cowards of us all, the coward, the opposite of the hero. Now, strikingly, this is the only one of Hamlet's soliloquy in which Hamlet doesn't measure himself against an exemplar, whether that be Hercules or Nero, the player, or Fortinbras. He represents himself as the quintessence of the individual, alone with his conscience, a man thinking, making decisions for himself without the crutch of precedent or example. Ultimately, Hamlet seems to be saying that we cannot rely on comparisons. Each of us must as Polonius's sententious statement has it, to our own self be true. And in this regard, Hamlet is a new and very modern, we might as well say, an existential hero. The hero is traditionally, as is said of Ajax in Troilus and Cressida, a very man per se and stands alone. Macbeth is increasingly isolated as his play progresses. As he himself says, he ends up like a lone bear tied to the stake in a baiting ring. Upon stabbing King Henry VI, Richard III announces himself with the words, I am myself alone. And in his last big speech, My Kingdom for a Horse, he uses the word myself no fewer than 12 times. So in his self-absorption and his isolation, Hamlet is perhaps not so different from the warriors who are his antitype. Hector says farewell to his wife Andromache, Aeneas to Dido, Coriolanus to his wife. The warrior hero stands alone in single combat. His closest bond is paradoxically with his adversary. In Coriolanus, Caius Martius and Ophidius almost treat each other as bride and groom. Hamlet too says goodbye to love, thus sending Ophelia to despair, madness and death. He too stands alone in his soliloquy. He goes on his journey to England effectively alone since he knows that his companions, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, have been suborned to betray him. He escapes alone, then goes alone into the fencing arena that takes the place of the battlefield. But he does have the close friendship of Horatio and, in regretful retrospect, the memory of his love affair with Ophelia, which he evokes when he jumps into her grave. And always he has his father's injunction to remember. In these bonds, these memories, Shakespeare knows that the self depends on a network of connections, those of family, of love and of friendship above all. And in this regard, Shakespeare redoubles his doubts 
about the heroic idiom of the man per se who stands alone. We have seen in detail how Hamlet is not like Virgil's Pyrrhus. Consider also the way that the supposedly exemplary Trojan and Greek heroes are represented in Shakespeare's play about the war that Homer remembered in the Iliad and Virgil in the Aeneid. In Shakespeare, Hector is henpecked, Ajax is a blockhead, Ulysses is a scheming politician, Achilles is less interested in fighting than in playing charades with his gay lover Patroclus, and Aeneas himself is reduced to the status of a glorified messenger who usually gets things wrong. Heroic masculinity does not get a good press in Shakespeare's Trojan War play. And that play, moreover, is named not for the Trojan and Greek heroes, but for the lovers, Troilus and Cressida. As for Aeneas, when he is mentioned in other plays, such as Antony and Cleopatra and The Tempest, it is in the context of his love affair with Dido and his desertion of her. For Shakespeare, love is a stronger force than heroism, and that will be the starting point for my next lecture, which will be about Shakespeare's classical lovers. Thank you.